Welcome to Coastline Church, seeking renewed faith in Humboldt County by being settled and secure in God's love. To learn more, visit coastlinefoursquare.com. What I really want to talk about is spiritual warfare, because it's been on my mind, especially as I've been reading the Psalms. And uh, just with stuff that went on nationally this week, and some things have just, I've just been thinking about the last two years. And I felt like God said, yeah, but the flavor I want you to talk about is one specific thing about spiritual warfare. And then that ends up tied to Isaiah 40, because I want to talk about us remembering our stories. And so I'm going to be sharing the story that's so relevant to me. <clears throat> this passage, <clears throat> so we're going to, we're going to do the I guess I'm saying is that it seems weird to talk about joy with tragedy going around and tragedy is real. Uh, scripture says weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. <clears throat> so that tells me that rejoice doesn't mean we don't weep. It doesn't mean an absence of sadness. It's about a core thing, a core part of our identity is what gives us joy, knowing how we have God's joy in us. And we can't comfort those around us unless we really understand God's comfort. And we can't fight the enemy unless we find out how joy is fed by spiritual warfare and actually being joyful is part of the spiritual warfare. So I just jumped into the middle of a lot of this. But <clears throat> so this is out of Philippians 4. Be rejoicing in the Lord always. Again, I will declare, be rejoicing. Let your lenience be known to all humans. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Sorry, this is a transliteral version. Um, it's partly of the concordant literal transversion, so it'll be a little different than yours. <clears throat> you may not be used to the word lenience, but that's actually the literal Greek word when it says forbearance. Uh, the context of this is, Paul has just finished saying, Yoyote and Syntyche, two dear sisters, I love dearly, help them get along. And this whole context in this is, let's get along in unity. So a lot of his spiritual warfare, a lot of the stuff he talks about in this particular aspect is all about human relationship along with God's. And the idea of this rejoicing is still tied to how do we deal with conflict and dissension between people. <clears throat> and that's why he says, let your lenience be known. <clears throat> Sorry. I guess I should have gotten the water, Carlo. <clears throat> Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and the peace of God that is superior to every mental state, frame of mind, imagination, shall be garrisoning your hearts and your mind effects, which means apprehension deeper than knowing facts in Christ Jesus. So again, I'm using a literal version here. That whole idea of, the people say, well, God's peace, you know, peace that's beyond understanding. It is true, it's beyond understanding, but the actual term in that means all mental states. Any apprehension, any gloom, any strange imaginations. Okay, so it's the idea is this peace of God is superior to every mental state. It'll be garrisoning your hearts and your mind effects. That's an interesting word, that mind effects. Thank you, Carl. Uh, Paul only uses this, this, this word for mind effects is only used six times in scripture. Five times are in 2 Corinthians, and the one time else is here. 
In 2 Corinthians, he uses it when he talks about people are lost in their veiled thinking. Uh, he says, uh, like with, uh, even when the Jewish leaders and teachers are reading the Old Testament to that day, the day that he was writing this, they have veiled thinking. The mind effects are blocked because they, they have a misunderstanding. Um, the devil, it says even the devil, we are, we are not ignorant of the devil's schemes. It's actually, we aren't ignorant of the devil's mind effects he would have on us. I, I typed Acts 1 and 2 because what Paul's getting at when he says there's a misunderstanding, you have to understand the Second Corinthians letter, Paul in a lot of it has to defend himself because he is being attacked. There are other leaders saying Paul isn't real and, or isn't true. And part of it is they have a misunderstanding of what it is to be an apostle. They have a misunderstanding of what it is to be walking with God. Because the fact that Paul's in jail, the fact that Paul is suffering, Paul is saying, that is how, I, I bear the marks. I know I'm an apostle because I've got stripes on my back. In other words, the proof of my apostleship is what I've suffered. They're under the view of almost more like those prosperity doctrine of, well, if Paul was true, man, he'd be golden. He'd be famous. He'd be preaching and teaching to crowds and... You know, you have an internet site that made millions of dollars. <clears throat> it's tied to Acts 1 and 2 because that kind of veiled understanding that Paul refers to that the Jews don't understand in the Old Testament, we see even with the disciples. Uh, last, last week, Anne, with, Anne, I don't know why I said Anne. Last week, Fran was speaking from Acts 1. And one of the interesting things I see in Acts 1 is when they ask him, well, now will you establish Israel's kingdom? Because even after all the walk with Jesus, even after the resurrection, they still had some <laughs> mindsets on what Israel was going to be and what the Messiah was going to do. And I'm not doing that to pick on them. In fact, God gloriously uses that. Because when you get to Acts 2, you know, Peter does a great sermon. But from Acts 2 on, there was this constant controversy of what is actually the gospel. And the thing I think that is powerful is Peter ended up the apostle to the Jews, Paul the one to the Gentiles. One reason Peter could be the one to the Jews is the Jews had a mindset of who Jesus was. Like to them very much, the fact that the Messiah died on a cross would right away tell them, well then obviously he is not the Messiah. Because if Jesus was the Messiah, he wouldn't have died on a cross. Because if he was the Messiah, he'd be the ruling king. And they had a misunderstanding. The powerful thing is the disciples had the exact same misunderstanding. And I say that because often when God gives us light, when he breaks a misunderstanding, the very people we can speak to are ones that have the misunderstanding we used to have. It's, it's almost like our whole approach. You can't, you can't beat someone into hearing something new. But when there's an encounter with God with one person, that person can say, oh, I get what you're thinking because I used to think the same thing and now I think totally different. And that's what we see happens in Acts 2. Okay, but the whole idea is it's tied to this whole thing of casting out strongholds and dealing with imaginations. Okay, this is in 2 Corinthians. <clears throat> so this is one of the five places it's in 2 Corinthians. This is the whole idea about weapons. For the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, but powerful toward God, to the pulling down of bulwarks, also to be strongholds, pulling down reckonings and every high elevate, every height elevating itself against the knowledge of God, leading to captivity, every mindset into the obedience of Christ. Is I want it clear, there, I know this doesn't flow, 
but I, I want us to see that this is a critical thing. This is actually not just, oh, I want to be able to walk in joy for my personal fulfillment. This whole idea of what, we're, what I want to get to is this way of thinking, this way of being, it is actually part of the whole spiritual warfare. But the mindset is more than just intellect. It's more than information. This whole idea of mind effects is it affects everything. It affects our emotions. It affects our imaginations. Um, somewhere I saw earlier on the slides, they quoted Isaiah 26. And Isaiah 26, 3, actually the literal word in Hebrew is imagination. It actually is about saying, the imaginations that are fortified by you yeah. will lead to peace. <clears throat> okay, so the whole idea is we're talking about joy, and it's not just for personal fulfillment. I mean, it's great. I, I want us to walk in God's joy. I want to enjoy it. But it's part of the battle, and it's also the result of the battle. And then I want to talk about specifically one weapon. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll go with this. Okay. Because <clears throat> I'm taking this a little different way than often we, we do things in church. We, we say words, we say phrases, we'll do whole sermons on. we got to rejoice at all times. We have to abide in Christ at all times. We have to pray without ceasing. Rely on God and not ourselves. I just finished going to a conference that they talked about integrity and unity and being allies and discipleship. And I was real upfront there when they asked my opinion. I was like, well, you know, sometimes I think before we do a whole weekend of sermons on this stuff, maybe we could just say, does everybody know we need integrity? Good. We know we need unity We need and we need allies in our life. We need to have discipleship. Oh, yeah, we all agree. Okay, good. Now let's not do those sermons. How do we do it? Because I, I, I sometimes feel like we spend all these motivational pump us up of we need to rely on God. We need to wreck like the big one. We have to rely on what his direction is and recognize his voice. When I feel like, yeah, but we just have a whole weekend together. And as I'm getting to know these guys, they don't deny that. They just have no idea how to do it. Like, it'd be more fruitful sometimes to spend time talking about how do we do that. <clears throat> okay, so we know the charge, but how do we do it? And I want to specifically get into that and how it worked for me in Isaiah 40. And I realized a year and a half ago I spoke on Isaiah 40. I promise you it's a little different. The other part is I know you probably forgot some things since then. You probably have slept since then. <clears throat> but, but the context, Isaiah 40 is a message of comfort from God and confidence in him to a restored people called to move into promise. I want to preface that because there are sometimes taken out of context, I've even heard messages on Isaiah 40 that kind of miss the point because they forget the tone of it is this is a whole message that starts where God twice says, comfort, comfort my people. Is that because sometimes it, we use it as a way of saying, because God talks about how big he is and how small we are. And it's almost like the whole point is, yeah, God's big, see, we are just valueless. That is not his point at all, okay? Because that's not the context. When I say tone, tone matters, so think of it this way. Now I'm asking the question, I, I want it clear, this is a hypothetical question, so don't call out an answer, okay? <laughs> all right. But if I were to ask you, does my shirt make you look fat? Okay, again, you're not answering. <laughs> but if I were to ask you, does my shirt make me look fat? You could answer, with the exact same words in different tones. You could say, no, the shirt doesn't make you look fat, okay? Or you could say, no, the shirt doesn't make you look fat. <clears throat> Very different message given to me. 
<laughs> so, so tone matters even when it's the same words. <clears throat> so the people that the people Isaiah is talking to. <clears throat> so in Isaiah 40 is, is what they call often the transition chapter. Because it's the prophecy that now we start to Isaiah, the whole theme of the book. Um, and all along it always prophesied both to the original Israel and to us. There's messages to both of us. But in 40, it really jumps to here is a, here is a prophecy to people while they are exiled. Okay, a lot of from, from Isaiah 40 on, there's a lot of messages that are targeted towards the people in exile and when they are going to be coming back. So it's basically a people that have been restored. But at the same time that they've been restored in this case, they still have to journey back and rebuild the temple. They have to rebuild the walls. They've got a major task to do. And they've got serious adver adversity. I mean, they've got people making false accusations against them. They have people really seriously trying to wipe them out. <clears throat> so the whole idea is that it's a people that are restored and called to move into the promise, but they're intimidated, distracted, and even hurt by great loss. And this is a thing common to all of us. Also make it clear, Isaiah 40 definitely applies to us now. It is, it is quoted in both the Gospels and the Epistles. So it is, it is definitely not, wasn't just for the people then, it's for us now. People suffering a great loss. They're intimidated by the size and difficulty of the task. Uh, they're intimidated by the size and power of the opposition. And again, I, I put in here authorities because in the Old Testament, it talks a lot about people as being our enemies. We know in the New Testament, we don't have people for enemies. Our enemies are spiritual enemies. So when I say the opposition, don't be thinking humans. Okay, because that, 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 that's stuck in the, the limit of the Old Testament. New Testament is taught us different. And there's great confusion about religion. They're thinking and they're feeling very abandoned, insignificant, ignored, unseen. Okay, it's, they're very much, and this is a running theme, especially if you read it in Psalms, but you can even see it in Isaiah and other places. <clears throat> the people have a running theme of, we have enemies and we are little in their sight. We have enemies, and there's more of them than us. We have enemies, and there's, they have these great sacrifices to their gods, and their gods seem to be working. This is one reason Israel, throughout in the earlier part, Israel would get led astray, because people serving other gods seem to have success, and so they would change for them. Okay? <clears throat> because they, they were a small nation. They did seem insignificant, if you looked at it just humanized. Okay, I want to get the actual scripture. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare, her enlistment, her deployment is ended and that her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Okay, I'm using the Revised Standard Version because it, it, it's, a, it's a very literal version. Um, I will refer just, there'll be one place where I don't use that one. But just, I just realized I didn't mark it. So this is RSV. I do want to say this idea of receiving from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. <clears throat> Some versions, including I know our beloved King James, makes it sound like God's saying, I have punished her twice as much for her sin. Or as I've double punished you for what you did wrong. And that's not, this word is only used three times in the Old Testament. It is not double like amount like you, you, you did bad to level six, so I'll punish you to level 12. No, it's actually the term for double-sided. In um, the one place it talks about a thing someone's wearing is almost being a double-faced garment or a double-protected garment. It has more to do with saying 
one side of the paper or parchment is written this, but I've written something else on the other. So it's more like this may have been your sins, but I've written double-sided. I've, I've now matched your sins with something else. Because of this, the concordant literal version translates it this way. Speak unto the heart of Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her enlistment is fulfilled, that her depravity is dealt with benevolently, because that's the other side of the paper. Her depravity is dealt with benevolently, that she is taken from the hand of Yahweh shelters for all of her sins. <clears throat> Again, tone matters. So I'm back to RSV. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. <clears throat> this gets quoted in the Gospels, so we obviously know this refers to Jesus. It talks about the Messiah and is quoted about Jesus, that John went before him to prepare the way for Jesus. But when you combine it with 40, you see it's actually a two-way thing because God is saying, prepare a way for me because I'm preparing a way for the people. Because he's also talking about the people will have a way prepared. There's all these obstacles to them coming back to the promised land and that's going to all be taken care of. So the whole idea is it's, it's a two-way. It's, it's the God. We're making way for a God who makes a way for us. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level. The rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord is spoken. <clears throat> the reason I want to go through this scripture. And I won't do. I, I'm actually going to skip some parts soon. But I want you to see the poetic part. So he could just say. God's going to come and remove obstacles. And that's all he'd say. But God belabors scripture. He actually writes scripture poetically. Most of Isaiah, to me, seems written very poetically. The Psalms are poetically. The reason why is because with poetry, you're engaging more senses. You're not just intellectually getting facts. It's to make you feel something. Okay, It's engaging the senses. <clears throat> and the whole idea is so that you can actually picture in your mind what's going on. You can use your imagination. God wants us to use our imagination. That's, that's why... That's why they don't make a cliff, well, they do make a cliff notes of the Bible, but that's why it's not good to rely on the cliff notes of the Bible. <clears throat> a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely people are like grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And again, tone. He's not saying... Humanity doesn't mean anything to him. Okay, First Peter 1, he quotes this literally. And his whole point, he says, is what opposes you and what you were caught up in your old life is temporary. It's like this, it's here today, gone tomorrow. But we are now people of the eternity because God's word stands forever. His declarations over us is we are now his bride for eternity. We are now those that last. And St. Corinthians 4 is just the whole idea where Paul says, um, was it? The, these light and momentary afflictions are nothing compared to the glory we receive. Um, the, the gist of it, if you looked at expanded, what he's really saying is if you look at what we're going to receive in eternity and you understand God's promise, you'll realize these afflictions are light and momentary. Okay, And this is Paul who spent a good deal of his life in prison and suffering. Yeah, break it. Okay. Get up to a mountain, O Zion. <clears throat> Herald of good things. Sorry. Let me start again. Get you 
to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good tidings. So Zion typifies the idea of Jerusalem, typifies the, the generator, like because instead of Mount Sinai, Mount Zion is us. It's, it's the place of promise. It's the mountain of Jerusalem. It's the mountain of the temple, which now we are the temple. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good things. Lift it up and fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Running theme all through Isaiah 40, but it's actually a running theme through Isaiah, is that behold, be awestruck with God. You see all these things. You have people against you. You see tragedy. You see all this stuff going on around you. You feel small in the eyes of all these nations that are bigger and powerful than you. And his answer is, let me tell you about me. So you're worried about them, but I need to tell you about me. And I, need you, I want to tell you about it in a way that you can expand on it emotionally. You can get engaged uh, with your imagination. Be awestruck with God. Again, behold, the Lord comes with his might. His arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense wages are work before him. The feel you get when you read this in the transliteral, because it doesn't come across very much, is it's kind of like he's talking about my reward and wages are coming. Is it repetitive? But it's more like the feel of when I come with you, I'm bringing a reward to give you. But what's set before me is my wages for the work I'm doing. So what he's saying is I'm coming with both reward, but I'm also coming to work. Like right before my face is the work I'm going to do. And so what he's saying is I say both reward and wages is I get a reward for my work and I'm giving you a reward because of who I've called you to be. <clears throat> he will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather his lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So here we have this almighty God, super powerful, and then he talks about tenderness. Because he wants you to picture, picture this whole idea of a shepherd carrying a lamb in his arms so you understand, I may be big and mighty, but I have a soft touch. I'm tender. I provide, I give, I give for you with love and in tenderness I provide for you. Because <clears throat> again, these were people that were seriously doubting provision at the time. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth and measured and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? So the size of his arm span. <clears throat> again, they, they would measure things by arm span. Uh, if it was cloth, they'd measure how much, I, I, how many, I, we call it yardage. I guess they'd call it spanage. But the whole idea is they'd measure how much cloth by spanning their arms. You'd measure your rope. And God says, great, I'm just like you. I measure with the span of my arm too. Only you measure rope, and I'm measuring galaxies. Okay, You, me you measure what you're going to do in your little town, and I'm measuring the whole freaking universe. Sorry. Freaking frickin is a spiritual term. <laughs> <laughs> Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Who is, or has his counselors instructed him? Who did he consult for his enlightenment? Who taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? The whole idea he's making is you can fear all these other things around you and they've got their wisdom and their understanding. But let, let's get it straight, okay? Long before this all existed, he already knew in his mind what was going on. In fact, uh, Ephesians 4 says, before he cast out the cosmos... He already foresaw you, and he already made up his mind about you. Before he cast out the cosmos, he already decided to see you blameless and holy in his sight. And by the way, his sight's the only sight that really counts as far as this goes. 
Okay, 15 through 24 is just more about God's immensity and the smallness of all else. He gets into the detail about the futility of religion, the insanity of idols, and the nothingness of rulers, including our enemies. Just for time, I'm not going to do all nine of those verses. Um, well, I will talk about the insanity of idols, though, a little bit. Because uh, on the futility of religion, he's saying, basically, you can burn up the entire Redwood Force. What he, what he says is Cedars of Lebanon. The Cedars of Lebanon is like our Redwood Force. It was the big, big fancy woods of the day. And he's saying, if you used the whole force and killed all the animals, that wouldn't be enough to impress me as a sacrifice. His whole point is, religion isn't going to get it. The thing about idols, he makes fun of the fact that you have these idols that you have to have some a skilled craftsman prop up for you. And I think it's interesting because even just a couple chapters later, he talks about how when you take a piece of wood, you cut it, you use half of it for a fire to cook your food, you use the other half you carve on, and then you have to prop it up against a wall and you bow to it like it's the one that can save you. And he just makes fun of him like, think about this. You recognize that all that wood was good for is to make your food warm, and now you're bowing to it. And his whole point is, why are you believing in things man makes instead of the one who made man? Why are you trusting in man-made things instead of the one who made man? Or to be politically correct, human-made things and the one who made humans. Uh, two couple, three chapters later, he talks about Bel and Nebo. Those were false gods and idols they, they worship. And he even draws this picture, again, to use imagination. He says, when you get ready to move from one place to another, you pack your stuff up, and you've got to go to your great gods and lift them up and put them in the cart and carry them with you. He's saying, like, think about this. These are your gods that you rely on, and you have to carry them with you. Why do you trust in gods you have to carry instead of the god who carries you? Okay, to whom will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and see in the sky who created these. And he's referring to the stars. He who brings out their hosts and numbers them, calling them all by name. Because of his strength, mighty and power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, and my right cause is disregarded by God? The whole point is, God is saying he knows the hundred billion trillion, because that's our estimate how many stars there are. He knows the hundred billion trillion stars by name, and I've never misplaced one. So why do you think it would tax me to be keeping track of you? Because the idea is, I want us to engage imagination. I know we've heard this before, we talked about it, but this is why scripture's repetitive. Again, he wants it, he doesn't want us just to hear like, oh yeah, God, God hears my prayers. No, because sometimes what happens is, deep down we emotionally think, well, this is a little thing, do I really want to trouble him? And he's trying to say, you don't get it. I'm keeping track of 100 billion trillion stars, and I'm not breaking a sweat. So none of, none of your stuff's going to tax me. <clears throat> so I want to tell you the trigger for me for camping. And I know I've shared this before, but you get to hear it again. <clears throat> I mean, this is, we're talking about like almost 40 years ago at a men's camp. And a friend of mine and I went out away from the tents where he was sleeping and went up into this place where we were just on this meadow because the sky was so clear. I mean, it was inland a little, so we didn't have atmosphere, a lot of moisture. And there was no moon. And so everywhere you looked, it's like the Milky Way, you can see the glow of the gases. Everywhere you looked were bright stars. 
You almost couldn't find a spot dark because if you look careful enough, there was like at least a faint star there. And I kept taking off my glasses so I could sleep. And my friend fell asleep, but I couldn't help it. I, I kept putting on my glasses. I, I probably was up like an extra two or three hours because I could not stop looking at these stars. And I understand what people have said. I think about the vastness of the universe and it makes me feel insignificant. But I looked at that and thought of this passage of like, all of these stars I'm seeing, he knows intimately. He knows them by name and he guides them all. And it just made me feel connected by him in a real sense. In my memory of it, I can remember how warm it was. Because it was a warm night. I can remember how dry the grass felt. I can remember what the crickets I was hearing. I remember these five senses. And I, and I have a reason to tell you this. Okay, But that, that whole thing stayed with me. Okay, 33 years later or so. And one of my jobs, one of the directors stepped down and instead of hiring another director, they just moved his world into mine. And there was a lot of chaos and a lot of problems. I don't need to go into the detail. But I remember one time feeling overwhelmed like, God, this is a lot. It's like there's a lot going on and I don't know what I'm doing. And in an instant, um, for me, I, I give these, uh, these events in my life either two or three word names, and this one's called Starry Night to me. And it was like that instant of, remember the starry night. And in that instant, and I don't think it took long, but just the whole memory of that night, what I felt, what I'm feeling, what God was to me, what he spoke to me. I mean, some things I'm not sharing now, like what he spoke to my heart. It came back to mind. And in that brief time, I went from fear, disappointment, like confusion, is I went to clarity and assurance of him like that quick. Because I had built up a trigger because we talk at the school, I teach it, they always talk about triggers of, that cause bad things in their life. And what I'm talking about is, let's intentionally build triggers that go the other way. And so just that memory, I, I relived in a matter of seconds, that experience. And then I was able to laugh and just kind of go, well, God, I'm only in this job because you gave it to me. So you got a lot of problems now and I don't have any. So I'm just really looking forward to seeing what you're going to do to solve these problems. But the whole idea is the joy returned came from having that trigger built in me. <clears throat> have you not known and have you not heard? The Lord is an everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him that has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, shall mount up with wings like eagles, and shall run and not be weary, and shall walk and not faint. And I know we, we've shared on the scripture before, and even what I'm going to share now, you've heard before. But I want to belabor it, because I want to talk about a trigger. Because <clears throat> that whole idea is, some versions say, those who hope in the Lord. But again, hope and wait are not passive. I even just saw a pastor the other day talk about how he's in between ministerial assignments and he's waiting on God. And the way he phrased him, going, I don't think he understands, because he even quoted this scripture, is that word wait doesn't mean you're sitting around. Is that whole idea is it is an active thing we do. It is not passive. <clears throat> so again, wait upon, hope in. The root word is first used in Genesis 1.9. It says, then God said, let the waters beneath the sky flow together. It's the root to that word, wait. Let them flow together into one place so the dry ground may appear. 
And that is what happened. I also like this scripture because, again, it's the power of God. It's like we live by the declarations of God. So he just says, God said, let the waters beneath the sky flow together into one place so the dry ground will appear. And that is what happened. So God said it, and it just happens. <clears throat> so flowing together. Isaiah 40, it also, a lot of commentaries bring this up. It means to be wound together, like to flow together in a spiral, or even being wound together with the Lord, like you, the way we twist rope together. Or in my life, the way I applied it was the way wire gets twisted together. Because every day at work as an electrician, I was often twisting wire together. And the reason I want to know this is because that created a key for me. The job could be going good, it could be going bad. As soon as I twisted wire together, it'd be like, oh, I need to be twisted together with Jesus. Like I say, they were speaking about integrity at that, that weekend retreat. And my whole thing is, integrity, like when you talk about a rope's integrity, you use the word, you know, rope has integrity. We do the same thing for electrical cable. Electrical cable is, is uh, conductors bonded together, twisted together, or grounds. Talk about the integrity of your grounds. It's about how well they're twisted together. So integrity is how well strings or fibers are bonded to the core. That, that's the whole secret to integrity, is how well am I bonded to Jesus? <clears throat> so I, I, I want us to see this, because I, I want images in your mind. You know, there's a small creek that flows into the river. Because I, I don't have a picture, because I don't think to take her some on a walk, and so I couldn't find one like I see. But I've, I remember walking, it was actually, uh, up on the Klamath. And there's just this little little brook, I wouldn't say it was a creek, a brook flowing into the Klamath. And where it came into the river, you could see the water change direction. So there's an obvious lesson. When we flow in with God, we go in his direction. But it did more than flow into the river. When I'd see debris, bubbles, little bits of leaves going in, I'd see that when the creek water goes in, I could tell by the debris what the current was doing. And that's why I'm, you're trying, I'm, you can't see it because it's not zoomed in, but I'm doing that with the muddy river and the other river. Is that they don't just change direction, they spiral. Like you'd see the debris spiral down river. So the water doesn't just change direction, it actually spirals in and becomes one with the rest of the river. So creek water only changes directions, it spirals in, together until it's one. And I'm going to give you some other pictures to try and get these stuck in your mind. And this, these are local rivers. And again, where the white water is, you can again the water swirls together. I know it's not a big, huge science new thing to you, but what I want it to do is stick in you, because the way it worked for me, I'd like it to work for you. <clears throat> After God spoke this to me, this is not like when I twist the wire together. I think of uh, being braided with Him. But then, whenever I see a river, I think, oh, I got to flow together with Him. See creeks coming together. Oh, flow together with God. Then expanded. To this day, I, when I drive, and I drive most days by the bay, it doesn't happen every time, but probably 90% of the time, I see the bay water, and I got to think, I want to flow together with you, Lord. I want to abide in you. So I see water. It, it got so prevalent, it got annoying. Like I turn on the faucet, and they come to mind, oh, here we go, Isaiah 40, flow together with God. I was in, in a restaurant once, and... This was some years ago. And the conversation was even a little tense. It wasn't going well. The meeting I'm having. The person spilt their drink. 
And as soon as they spilt their drink and the water flowed out of the cup onto the table, as his water flowed out of the cup, it was, oh, I got to flow together with the Lord. Changed the whole outcome of the whole meeting. <clears throat> the point I want to get to is, is this whole idea of we get overwhelmed, we get tired, feeling weak. Um, again, he talks about his love. The, the thing I have to watch from my heart in is, uh, we don't do it today, but there's, a, there's like six symptoms of when you're having relational burnout. And one of them is, you start getting apathetic. It's not just you can't weep with those who weep. But what happens is other people that are sharing joys, you can't share the joy with them. Um, an author once, once told me, or didn't tell me, I read it in his book, that sometimes the first sign of the trouble in a marriage is not that they can't share together in the struggles, it's that when the spouse has something exciting, the other spouse can't get excited with them, is they lose their interest in what gives each other joy. He says, that's often the first symptom. Okay, so if I get overwhelmed, let your frail thread be entwined with the Holy Spirit who gives strength and power. Lacking wisdom, come be braided in the Father who is all wise and never lacks understanding. Feeling apathetic, too tired to care, enter God's river, flow with Jesus' love, be immersed in the swill of the Holy Spirit. It's not just a cute quote. What I'm saying is this is a thing we can practice. We talk about we have to abide in God. We have to rely on his strength. And we have to return to joy as spiritual warfare. It comes from beholding him and remembering he's a river that's way bigger than us. He has an immense number, he actually has an infinite number of threads. So my little individual thread may feel frail and weak like it could break, but he can braid it in with his threads. And he's got an infinite number of them. And then there's the whole idea of community too, because if we braid all our threads together, it gets strong. But that's another thing. The point I'm after is, we need to build triggers of gratitude, triggers of connection. Is throughout the day, let, let nature speak to you, let the trees, let other people speak to you, whatever memory you have, rehearse it even. Uh, with my students, I have them journal about this. I give them an assignment, and actually I'll give you the same assignment, even though I have different homework. So we, I, I require journal writing in my classes, and like right, uh, one of their assignments at one time, I will say, I need you to journal when you have felt a great connection with God. Or they can journal about negative things, say, okay, I want you to journal about when God came through for you. Like how did he come through for you in a tough situation? And in it, I want you to describe for me, what was it like? Was it a sunny day? Was it at night? Was it dark? What were you feeling? Were you cold? Were you hot? Like really get into it of what was I sensing physically? Was I sensing emotionally? What was I hearing? What was I thinking? <clears throat> because God speaks to us and does amazing things for us. But like Psalm, was it 103 says, you know, bring to remembrance the things God has done for you. It is what gives you strength in the crisis is able to bring to remembrance what God has done for you in the past. That is easier to do in the crisis if you take the time to really engage with it when you're calm. That's why I recommend it in journaling, recommend thoughts. So my homework assignment to you is, when has God spoken to you? A ask him, I mean, I know there's multiple times, but ask him to highlight one and get into the whole idea of what was I feeling? What was I thinking? Again, for me, I was walking by a creek and I saw this creek water flowing into the river or I'm looking at the starry night. And because it's vivid and it's strong in my mind, it doesn't take long when, when crisis hits or negative emotions are happening, I can bring that up quickly. 
because I've rehearsed in my mind what the experience was. Make sense? Okay. So, so again, the whole idea is you're building triggers of connection and gratitude. Because just like people can have, oh, well, a guy said something that triggered me, because I, I, I just hear the word a lot with my students. You know, oh, when you preach on that sermon, this is what it triggered bad in me. I'm like, okay, I get that. How can we make it now where you get triggered for good things? Trigger, there's, there's more than one kind of trigger we can have. <clears throat> so what will you ask the Father to trigger in your mind when you see the stars? I, I still go out at night, Carter will attest to it, I go out every night to look at the stars. Well, I go out every night to attempt looking at the stars. I live in Arcata, yeah. so I don't actually see it. Like last night, I did not see stars in Arcata. <clears throat> when you see any moving liquid, the creek, the bay, a faucet, your child spilling a cup of milk, whatever, what will you practice for calling? In other words, intentionally let these things build up. I mean, this even happened to me in the restaurant day because I spilled water the other day. With, with a bunch of guys at Denny's, and we end up talking about this. <clears throat> and then what other triggers can you have with Jesus? So my practical part for homework is, I want to center spiritual warfare, but this one method of spiritual warfare is building up things for you that help you return to joy. Because crisis comes, trouble comes, it's, it's part of life. This, this, the six negative emotions, which otherwise any of us, okay, the negative emotions, they're gonna come. How can you have joy in the midst of them? How can you return to joy? And to me, this is one of the practicals. Build up. Well, first, behold God and how crazy awesome he is. And now you realize that God that is crazy awesome, crazy loves me greater than I could ever love anything. Let that seep into you and then build up these triggers of experiences with them that you can call on. Because that's part of the spiritual warfare. Okay? Thank you for joining us today at Coastline Church. To find out more information, please visit coastlinefoursquare.com.